Well, thank you to our worship team, and good morning to those of you who have joined us for worship today in our second service. Uh, I'd like to invite one of our members up before we start our sermon this morning. I want to bring up a young man, Daniel Bennett. Daniel has been uh, a member of this church for about four years now and has uh, been just a real blessing to us here. Uh, and so I wanted to introduce him to you and share a little bit about some exciting things that are coming up with him. So why don't you just introduce yourself, let us know how you've kind of served here at Bethany over your time here. Hi, I'm Daniel Bennett, and uh, I've been working here at Bethany for the last four years in the middle school crosswalk program, uh, working with your middle schoolers and loving it and working with the volunteers and worked with Jaron and now with Germs. And yeah, I also did... Someone reminded me after first service. I also was your Awana game director for two years there in the middle as well. Yeah, and I heard one of the best Awana game directors we've ever had, even rivaling Tim Hartley. So that was a pretty good, uh, pretty good commendation there. Uh, Daniel is one of the rare guys, I think rare, in youth ministry that uh, really loves middle schoolers. You know, I was a youth pastor once myself, and I've known a lot of youth pastors, and a lot of times a church hires you, and they want you to do both, middle school and high school, and most youth pastors tolerate the middle school because they like working with the high schoolers, but Daniel's kind of the reverse, and that's great, which is awesome because he has an exciting opportunity coming up now in middle school ministry, so why don't you share that with us? Yeah, so back in September, I'm in my last semester of my master's at Corbin, um, so I started putting in my applications in September for positions, and as of last week, I just accepted a job offer to be the middle school youth director at Morningstar Community Church. Yeah, so give him a hand. That's exciting. So because of that, that means that this is Daniel's last Sunday with us, and this Wednesday will be his last time with our crosswalk group, so we wanted to... Uh, bring him up here so we could share what was going on and so that you could be in prayer for him as he embarks on this new journey. So why don't we take a moment now and pray for him together. Father, we thank you for, for Daniel and the good work that you have done in his life to bring him to yourself, to grow him in you, uh, to provide him with training for how to serve you better. We thank you for all the ways that he's served us joyfully here at Bethany, uh, just a good and model member of our youth volunteer staff, and we are so grateful for that and for the fruit that's been born and the ministry that he's had here at Bethany. And we pray as he steps out in faith to take on a new, exciting opportunity, we just pray that you would go before him and that he would look to you as you do. We pray that he would seek to point these young people that come to the youth group and are involved in the church there and their friends. We pray that he would point them to your son, Jesus Christ, that they might find salvation in him, that even at this young and critical age, they might be placed on a path to serve him and to walk with him for the rest of their life. We are grateful for the time that we've had with Daniel. We are uh, sad to see that end for now, but we are so excited for what you have before him. And we're so grateful that you're keeping him here as a gospel witness in our city. We pray for our brothers and sisters at Morningstar and that you would lead and guide them in all that they do and that they would honor you in their church. And we pray in particular for this transition as it comes up. Uh, with bringing Daniel on board. Pray that would be good and smooth and positive. And so we lift this up to you and we trust you in it and we glorify you for all that you'll do in this. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
And, all right, thanks, Daniel. Thank you. So, go back to youth group now. <laughs> so, so, with that, we're going to turn over to our sermon time. So, uh, we took away all my intro time for that. So, let's just get straight to the text. So, we are going to be in Philippians chapter 3, and we will be in verses 17 through 21 this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn there, and I'll be reading from the English Standard translation of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the chairs in front of you, and if you want to find this passage, you can find it on page 922 at the bottom there. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you just to take that one and read it and be blessed by that. So let's read this passage together. Philippians 3, 17 through 21, Paul writes, and he says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So that is the word of God. That is our text for this morning. And we are excited to dive into this a little more. We see in the first part of this passage that it is about what type of person to follow and what type of person not to follow. We see that verse 17 says, follow this type of person. Verses 18 and 19 imply, do not follow this type of person. And then verses 20 and 21 will tell us why. And so if you need an outline for this morning, this is our basic outline. Point one is be like this. And then point two is don't be like that. And then point three is this is why I am telling you these things. Some of you may be familiar with a media property known as Eat This, Not That. And this started as a magazine column and has since branched into full magazines, books, uh, phone apps, and more. And the basic premise of many of their early articles was simple. The author would look at a restaurant or a grocery store or something like that, and he would point out menu items that were recommended to eat and then other ones that you should leave on the shelf and not eat. And the, uh, the healthier options that had you know, fiber and protein and all that sort of stuff were awarded the eat this designation. And the ones that were full of calories and sodium and sugar and all those things that give food flavor, they were on the not that list. So people were drawn to the format for its simplicity, eat this, not that. We like to work in binaries. Do this, don't do that. And here we have another in our text today. It puts be this and not that. Or follow this and not that. Or imitate this and not that. And we'll see that the first section is that command to be like this. And we find this in verse 17 where Paul says, imitate me. Be like me. This is why he spent so much time in this chapter talking about himself. If you scan back through Philippians 3, you'll see that most of this chapter is autobiographical. Verses 4 through 7 are all about the person that Paul was before he came to know Jesus Christ. 
He was outwardly righteous. He followed all the rules of his religion. He was proud in his heritage and his pedigree. He was, as he calls it, confident in the flesh. But then verses 8 through 11 shift to his present state. Now he has come to know Jesus. And so he counts his previous life to be a loss, to be rubbish when he compares it to knowing Christ and being found in him. He thought that he had a righteousness before, but now he has one that comes from faith. And it's not his own. It's a righteousness that has been given to him. And he longs now, he says in verses 12 through 14, he longs to know the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and to become like him. Or then in 12 to 14, he describes his future, saying that his purpose and goal now is to continue becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. To, as he says, make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he recognizes that he's a work in progress, but he is progressing toward the goal of Christ's likeness by holding true to the promises of God in Christ. So he's been talking about himself a lot in this chapter, and this is all led up to verse 17, where he says, brothers, join in imitating me. He has not just been describing his own life in order to brag or to somehow impress people. He is trying to be an example. He is trying to teach by doing. And so he says here, be like me. And we know that Paul was acutely aware of his own sin. You can read this in Romans 7 and elsewhere. He knew that he was a flawed man, that he was in need of a savior. But he also knew that he had been saved, that he'd been given new life in Christ, that he was pursuing Jesus with all he had. So he could say here without reservation, join in imitating me. And I think there are some of us who would never think to say that out of a misguided sense of humility. We think, I could never tell anybody that they should be like me. We think, and we're right, we think that the purpose of being a Christian is to follow Christ, to imitate him, and that is very true. But we know also that Jesus left. He ascended to heaven where he sits now, and sometimes it is helpful to have flesh and blood examples of what it means to follow Jesus. And God graciously gives those to us. So we should strive to be able to say the same thing, that we could say to others, join in imitating me because I am following Jesus Christ. And it doesn't have to be arrogant. This isn't an arrogant statement from Paul. Paul wants people to follow him, not because he is so righteous or good, but because he has given up on pursuing his own righteousness and has received instead the righteousness of Christ by faith. And he's also not only talking about himself, like just follow me, follow Paul. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is not just the great apostle here that everyone should follow. He's simply a Christian. And he's saying, there are others like me who live in this same way and you should follow them too. A Christian is a person who is looking to Jesus. And Paul says, find those who are living in the manner in which I've described here and follow them. It's a great thing to find good examples. When you find Christian ones, try to be like them. Spend time with them. Learn from them. Follow them as they follow Christ. But we have to be careful in this. Remember the principle, eat this, not that. The reason why it's tricky to know what to eat 
is because whether or not a food is good for you, it's still presented to you as food. And you think, food's food. What's the difference? And I have a friend who is typically healthier than me. Believe it or not, they exist. He eats very well. And I asked him once, How, what's, you know, what, what's your basic philosophy here? And he said one of the biggest secrets in eating healthy was that I simply resolved to eat food. And he said there are a lot of things out there that present themselves as food, but probably have no business being called food. Yes, you can eat them and digest them, but they're so loaded with things that you shouldn't be, that you probably shouldn't eat and digest these things. And it was really good nutritional advice that I hope to put into practice someday. If you want to eat well, eat food. Eat real food. And Paul is drawing a similar distinction here. He says in verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And it would seem here that these are some sort of counterfeit Christian teachers. These are ones who present themselves as Christians but are actually working against the purposes of Jesus. This is why Paul has to warn against them. This is why he is so emotional about this, writing through tears. He doesn't just want to correct and be right. He cares about this, about people who would present themselves as Christians and would deceive others who might even think they're Christians themselves. And so he is emotional about this. But he's saying, just as not everything that presents itself as food is food, not everything that presents itself as Christian is Christian. Someone can come in the name of Christ, but be working against all that Jesus is. And there are many ways to work against Jesus in the name of Jesus. We can affirm belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can affirm true things. We can affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and then yet teach either explicitly or implicitly that the purpose of Christianity is to become righteous enough for God to accept you. And as a result of that, we can begin to not see our efforts towards human righteousness as being rubbish like Paul did. We start to see them as valuable, and so we begin working against the cross in that way. Or we can preach the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and emphasize his grace, but in doing so, not emphasize following him in holiness, what Bonhoeffer called a cheap grace. We take away the desire to become like him that Paul has emphasized in this chapter. Or we could present Christ as the key to a victorious life, the one who will bring about all the blessings you've hoped for, wealth, happiness, a good family, all forms of prosperity. And in doing so, we can take away the call to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. So you see that not everything that presents itself as Christian is of Christ. And the consequences of following these deficient forms of Christianity are dire. Look at the description of these people in verse 19. Their end is destruction 
Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So Paul identifies four things about them. Their end, he says it's destruction. These are people who are not going to heaven, but to hell. Their future is one of judgment. They may think that they are saved, but they are not. They claim to know God, but in the end, they will know him only as judge and not as savior. Because their true God, Paul says, their God is their belly. What is this referring to? It's referring to their base desires, right? But at heart, they serve a different God. They do what they want to do, what will benefit them. And Paul says, you are serving a different God. They are idolaters. They're no different than those in Old Testament times who set up worship sites and and shrines for Canaanite deities. They are no different than those in New Testament times who gathered in the temples of Greek or Roman gods. Perhaps they would never affirm false gods, but their actions show who their true God is, and it is not the true God. It is themselves. So their God is their belly. Paul says that their glory is actually their shame. The things that they glory in are shameful. They are proud of doing things that they should be ashamed of. They are putting themselves out there as something to admire, as someone to follow, but it's not the case. You should actually be shying away from these people. I remember going to middle school in the early 90s, which was quite a time to be alive and quite a time to be in middle school. And by this time and place, it was acceptable for guys in middle school, socially acceptable now, to have your ears pierced. But there was a strict code to this in our school. Nobody knows where it came from, but we all knew the code. If you were a guy, you could get both ears pierced, and that could be fine and socially acceptable. And you could get one ear pierced, And that could be fine, but it had to be the left ear. You show up with a right ear piercing, and oh my goodness, that supposedly said something about you that most middle school boys did not want to have said about themselves. It tagged you as having a certain type of lifestyle. And I don't know where that came from, but I remember on one occasion, a kid showing up, a guy showing up to school, wanting to show off his new ear piercing and having it on the wrong ear. He got it mixed up, showed up with the right ear piercing. He thought it was cool. It was not cool. He thought he should be proud of it. He should be embarrassed of it. So we would go off and talk about those guys like that saying, they glory in their shame. That's how we talked in middle school in the 90s. We said, those guys glory in their shame, right? Uh, But no, like, he thought he was cool. He thought he did something cool, but he didn't. He did something embarrassing, and it was painful to watch. But Paul says that here, but in a spiritual sense. They're doing things they think they should be proud of. They should actually be ashamed of these things. Perhaps they're doing things that they think are godly or, you know, worth emulating. But no, in fact, they're things that are pushing them away from God and from Christ. And the main point Paul is making on all of this is at the end of verse 19, where he describes their perspective. He says, with minds set on earthly things. Enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ want you to focus only on the here and now. 
Because the cross of Christ points us to something far greater, something higher. It directs our focus to transcendent realities, to things that are unseen, things that are heavenly, things that subvert the world order. The cross tells us that suffering can be a blessing, that shame can lead to glory, that rejection can bring about acceptance, and that destruction can accomplish salvation. It is all backwards, and that's why it's so easy easy to move away from it. And false forms of Christianity will almost always, in some way, put the focus onto the here and now. What are you doing right now? What are you getting out of this right now? What are you enjoying right now? There's no looking beyond, and that's why it is a false Christianity. It's like pointing at something to a dog. You get a dog here, and there's something off in the distance, and you point, and you say, look over there. But what does the dog do? He just looks at your finger. He does not follow the trajectory of it. He thinks, what is on that finger for me? What can I get out of that finger? But the point is to move beyond it to what it is pointing to. And false ideas about Christ are the same. They move our focus to the here and now. They don't really look beyond, but the cross points us beyond. That's why some walk as enemies of the cross with their minds set on earthly things. But now this description of Paul's enemies here is one that has long baffled the scholars who study Philippians. And you read the different commentaries and they all ask, who are these people that Paul is talking about? Where did they come from? They seem to come out of nowhere because it seems like Paul's opponents, he's addressed opponents already in this letter to the Philippians, but it seems like they were scrupulous legalists, very religious people. We call them Judaizers, right? They're attempting to put Old Testament law on the Gentile converts. We see this back in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, where he gave a warning. He said, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What's he talking about? He gives a contrast in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Right? These were those, you know, he's talking about people there who wanted all the Gentiles to be circumcised and to follow all the Jewish customs and that sort of thing. But now he's describing these enemies in verse 19 here, and they sound like licentious pagan people. You know, they do whatever they want. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. That sounds like eating and drinking whatever you want and practicing sexual immorality. Not at all like the previously described opponents. But I think that Paul is being clever here and that he could be describing different groups of people. He could be describing out-and-out pagan people, worshiping false gods, getting drunk, doing who knows what sexually, being all sorts, all kinds of pagan. Or he could be, if you squint a little, you could see him describing scrupulous Jews trying to follow every Old Testament law. For their God is also their belly. Right? Who is more concerned about what goes into their belly than those who are hyper-religious? They are more concerned about what they eat than about who they are eating it for. So who then is their true God? 
And they glory in their shame, Paul says. All the things that Paul, you know, remember Paul ran down his whole religious resume and he said, all of this is rubbish. It's refuse. And these are the things that they are proud of. Paul knows this. He used to be one who gloried in his shame. Not in like flaunting sexual immorality, but in his scrupulous Jewishness and thinking that that would make him right with God. He gloried in that, but it was actually his shame. It was rubbish. It was refuse. Paul knows. So either way, it fits. These could be false teachers saying that in Christ, you can do whatever you want. You can come to Christ. You can live like a pagan. doesn't matter. Or it could be those who say that in Christ, you have to gain a righteousness through law keeping. It works both ways. It keeps the focus on the here and now. So it doesn't really matter who they are. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. And so Paul has said, don't follow those types of people. He said, instead, follow me and people like me because we follow Christ. And in verses 20 to 21, he provides the fundamental distinction between the two. So we've looked at the be this. We've looked at the don't be that. Now we'll look at the this is why, our third section. And it begins with this in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is such a beautiful description of what it means to be a Christian. It says who we are, and it says what we are doing. First, our citizenship is in heaven. That is who we are. That is our identity. We are citizens of heaven. We talked earlier in this series about the meaning of citizenship to the city of Philippi. Though it was a bit of an outpost on the eastern edge of Greece, because there had been many Roman soldiers that had settled there, it had been made an official Roman colony, and many residents in Philippi actually had Roman citizenship. And though they were not geographically connected to mainland Rome per se, they were like an outpost of true Rome in a far off land. And Christians are likewise citizens of heaven. We may not reside there, but that is where our true citizenship lies. And take note, this supersedes every other identity and citizenship that we may have. We are not first Americans And then Christians, we are always Christians first. Jesus is our king. Heaven is our kingdom and our homeland. So ask yourself, which is more important to you? Your earthly or heavenly citizenship. Which would be more devastating for you to lose? Which do people know you as? Which do you more readily identify with other people as sharing? These are good questions, but we recognize, again, Jesus is our king. Heaven is our kingdom. It is where we will go. We know that the church is an embassy of heaven. We gather together here to remember our true home. We swear allegiance to our true king and savior. We come here because we know that we are heading somewhere other than here. We gather with our fellow citizens to remember our homeland, which we have never been to, and to remember our king, which we have never seen in the flesh, but both of whom we miss and which we are dying to see. And if you are here today and you are not a a Christian, you should ask yourself, do you feel at home in this world? 
Are you satisfied with this world being all that there is for you? Are you okay accepting that all you will ever do, see, and experience is what is presently visible and observable on this rock that we call earth? Or is there a part of you that says, I know I was made for something more? Do you long to be at home somewhere, but even when you've made it home, you find that you still feel homesick and you don't even know what you are homesick for? Have you ever felt that way? Jeremiah read this morning from Hebrews 11 about people of old who followed God in faith because they knew that they were exiles on the earth, that the earth was not their true homeland, because they knew that they had a truer homeland to seek, because they knew that they had a burning desire for some reason for a better country, a heavenly one, because they knew that God had prepared for them a city. There's a place that we are made for, and it is not this world. And I believe that all of us, if we look deep within ourselves, we will find that we long for something greater than what we can see, than what we can experience on this earth. Whether Christian or non-Christian, we know this. We know we're made for something more, but the Christian has recognized this, acknowledged it, and put his hope in Jesus Christ to bring us to that place or to bring that place to us. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in Mere Christianity, he said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and they want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. And then the famous quote says, if I find in, my de in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You have been made for another world. That is where these desires come from. Lewis goes on to say, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. We are made for somewhere other than here. To be a Christian is to recognize that and to recognize also that the place that we have been made for, we are unfit for that place. It is a place of holiness and perfection and beauty, and we are not those things. We lack those things. We have sin where there should be holiness, and we have deficiency where there should be perfection, and we have destruction where there should be beauty. But we recognize that in Jesus Christ are all of those things in overflowing abundance. And so we give ourselves to him, and we say, make us fit for heaven, and he does. And through his work on the cross, he removes our sin and our imperfection. And when we come to him in faith, he gives us a righteousness, not our own. He gives us that completeness and perfection and beauty that is in him. He makes us like him so that we're ready to be citizens of heaven. So that when we get there, we have what it takes to be admitted because he has given it to us. The Christian is one who knows 
that he is rightfully made for heaven, having been made in the image of God, and he's trusting in Christ to qualify him for citizenship there. That's who we are. Our citizenship is in heaven. But there's something this passage tells us that a Christian does out of that identity. And what do we do? We wait. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. From heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is perhaps the most significant description of the Christian life that we will find in Philippians. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to wait. And that might seem a bit boring, but it doesn't need to be. We often associate waiting with inactivity, with doing nothing, and with a waiting room where you're just trying to stall until something better comes along. But there's more to waiting than that. In fact, even the origin of our English word for wait is more interesting. It has evolved, or perhaps devolved, from older terms that referred to like lying in wait or to watching something with hostile intent, like you're waiting there to get something. It was once a more active term for sure. And though the intent of waiting in Philippians 3 is obviously not hostile, it is active. It's probably picked up better even in Spanish translations of the scriptures. One of my favorite things about the Spanish language is that there is one word that is used to translate the English word waiting as well as the English word hoping. It's that word esperar. It's such a more optimistic word than what our waiting has devolved to. There's always a hope embedded into it. And so we see this in the Reina Valera translation of the scriptures in Philippians 3.20. It says, esperamos al Salvador. We are waiting for a Savior, and yet it is a hopeful waiting. A waiting that is informed and animated by what is yet to come. A waiting that looks ahead to the future and orients the present in light of that future. And what is the future to come? We are told here, first of all, it is a person. More than anything, it's a person. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting for our Savior who has promised to come back to us. He's our Savior. He is our Lord. He is in heaven, and He is coming for us, and we miss Him, and we want to be with Him present and visible in all of those things, and we should want nothing for eternity if Jesus is not there. But if Jesus is there, we should want to be there too. And so we wait for that. I think that's the biggest problem, perhaps, with the false teachers that he's describing here. They refuse to wait. Their minds are set on earthly things. They only want to see the here and now. But we wait. We wait for someone to come. And so ask yourself, who is coming for you? Now, most of us here, we are Americans. We are Oregonians, even. We are descendants of pilgrims and pioneers. We are fiercely independent. We don't need anyone to come for us, or so we think. We can accomplish a lot on our own, for sure, but we need someone to do for us what we cannot do on our own. Look at what Jesus will do when he comes. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This has to do again with our fitness for heaven and for eternity. We live in bodies that are breaking down and falling apart. And some of you here may be young and in peak fitness. Some are older, maybe even nearing the end of life. 
But no matter who you are, you cannot elude time. Your body is dying, and you have to reckon with this. Your heart will one day stop beating. Your brain will one day stop firing signals. Your lungs will one day stop taking in air. You and I will die because we have what is called in this passage a lowly body. And beyond that, your flesh is sinful. You and I are weak. We are prone to wander. We need fixed Our bodies are lowly in this way too. But Jesus will transform them to be like his. And this is not to say that we will be like Jesus' body when he walked on earth prior to his crucifixion. That was a body that he took on that was capable of death and, you know, and hurt and all of those things. No, we will be like Jesus' resurrected, ascended, heavenly body. The body that defied the process of death. The body that would be forever without sin, having overcome all temptation the body that ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, having been crowned with glory and majesty. The body that could take that place will have a body that is somehow like that one. And there are so many connections here between this passage. I would encourage you to consider our passage today and maybe on some time on your own, compare it to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. But I want to look at this just a little bit. So if you have your Bible, flip back just a page or so to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is, of course, the great high point of the book of Philippians, Paul's hymn of salvation in Christ. And beginning in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A wonderful passage of Scripture. Again, that apex point of Philippians that the whole book revolves around. And we see here in our passage today a number of connections between our passage and this one. First, we see an emphasis on the same place, which is heaven. We are told our citizenship is in heaven, that Jesus will come from heaven. Philippians 2 tells us how he got there, that after dying and rising again, that he's been highly exalted and glorified in heaven and on earth. Second, we see the same title. It says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that title of Lord. In Philippians 2, we see that Jesus has been given a name above every name and that everyone is to confess that name, that Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord of heaven and earth as well as the Lord of our lives. Third, we see the same concepts of transformation. And if you were to read this in the Greek, you'd see some of these connections more visibly. The root word for transform in verse 21, who will transform our lowly body, is related to the word in Philippians 2.11 that says Jesus existed in human form. And the phrase to be like in verse 21, where it says to be like his glorious body, is linguistically related to when it says that Jesus took the form of a servant, that he had been in the form of God. So we see transformation from one form to another in both passages. Fourth, there's the same description of the human condition. It is that word lowly. It's the same word used in Philippians 2 when it says that Jesus humbled himself. It means he took our lowly form. 
And fifth, there's a connection between what happens at the end of the poem in Philippians 2. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. There's a connection there to what he will do for us. The power that causes that to happen is used on our behalf. Jesus will transform our bodies, we are told, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The power that brings the entire world and everyone in it, everyone who's ever lived in submission to him, is the power that he will use to transform Christians to something new and like him. So we see that the great hymn of Philippians 2 about Jesus is kind of played out like in reverse for us. Jesus starts out glorious and perfect, but then humbles himself to take a lowly body like ours, but earns his way back to the lived experience of glory and perfection. But we do not start with glory. We are born in sin. We start in lowly bodies. But Jesus, it says, will come, transform those bodies and make us ready to live with him forever. This is what we are waiting for. And so, no, it's not a boring waiting. It's everything. It puts everything into perspective. I want to read briefly from Romans 8, and you can turn there if you want, or just listen to this passage. Paul is writing here to a group of Christians, and a number of them are suffering. And I think he wants them to gain perspective in Romans 8. And so he writes a lot here about waiting, and it's powerful stuff. He uses the same word for waiting that's found in Philippians 3 a number of times. I'll read here Romans 8, 18 through 25. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And now hope that is not seen is not hope, or hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. Again, this concept of waiting, the Christian life is one of waiting. This patient waiting changes everything. It's what allows us to endure suffering. It puts everything into perspective. It gives us hope and purpose. It grounds us. We hope for Jesus Christ, who will come from our true home in heaven, who will get us all ready to live there, and then will stay with us there forever. This is our great hope. So do you believe this? And are you living in light of this? Have you seen that the hope of what is to come is worth far more than anything we have here in this world? Have you understood that it is the cross of Jesus Christ that has made all of this possible? Paul has exhorted us here to be the kinds of people who know these things to believe them, to live in light of them. He has exhorted us to find others and follow them if they do likewise. He has reminded us that many, even those who claim the name of Christ, operate in opposition to this because they don't wait. They're focused merely on the here and now. And he's pointed us to our true identity. We are citizens of heaven. He's pointed us to our greatest activity, that we are waiting for Jesus Christ. And he's pointed us to our blessed hope, 
which is the transformation that is to come. So let's keep those things in mind as we move forward together in faith. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is given to us. And we thank you for people that you have given to us in our lives, people that we can imitate, people who have considered their own self-righteousness to be rubbish and have followed Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be those kinds of people and that we could find those kinds of people also to learn from and to follow. We pray that you'd give us discernment to recognize those who may be enemies of the cross of Christ, to have our guard up against any whose focus is on the here and now, whose minds are set on earthly things. May we remember our true citizenship, that it is in heaven, that there is a place for us that we are truly suited for. If we are in Christ, a place that we are truly destined for. Help us to see ourselves in that light, primarily as citizens of heaven. And though we are not there yet, we recognize that we are waiting, but it is a hopeful waiting. We await not just anyone, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We await the transformation that will come in him as his great power works in us to make us like him. What a thing that will be, God. We can hardly comprehend what that might even be, but give us faith to hope for it and to wait for it and to let that waiting shape who we are as people. As we walk in this world, may we be witnesses of that for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and worship with us one more time as we close. You stood before creation 